This is episode 13 with Claire England, partner at Portfolio Venture Funds. Welcome everyone to The Multiplier Effect, an Endeavor NWA podcast. The entrepreneurs pitching to a group of investors should see themselves in the room. It elevates the questioning to diversified experiences. And we've got organizations like Endeavor, which supports entrepreneurs starting a $100 million fund to invest in companies. Regionally, all of us really have to work together to highlight the heartland. Welcome back to The Multiplier Effect. This week, we are continuing the theme of our 15-part investor series with Claire England, who collaborates with economic development entities to build startup investing communities globally. She is a partner in Portfolio's Femtech Fund, which is actually the first fund in the U.S. to invest solely in women's health companies. Claire graduated from Kauffman Fellows in 2018, which for those unfamiliar with this program, it's a prestigious executive educational program for venture capitalists. From 2014 to 2019, she served as chief executive of Central Texas Angel Network, CTAN, one of the largest, most active angel investing groups. Under her leadership, members invested $14 million into 40 to 50 companies annually, and CTAN ranked number one nationally in investing activity for the first time in its history. For two decades, Claire developed community and organizational strategy in the entrepreneur ecosystem and previously at charitable nonprofits. Her startup community endeavors included working as a startup's first full-time employee leading a Forbes nationally recognized must-attend conference for entrepreneurs and creating global startup projects for South by Southwest Interactive and Accelerator and a university. Claire is a public speaker, panelist, and pitch judge for global innovation conferences. She serves on St. Edward University's Business School Board of Advisors and volunteers as a mentor at startup accelerators, including Techstars and Mass Challenge. She is truly a wealth of knowledge in the angel investing space and has helped to pioneer accessibility for women investors from ATX to NWA. We are so happy to be having her actively engaged with the investor community in Arkansas and are honored to have her on the show today to talk about the assets she has seen women investors bring to the table and what programs are impacting entrepreneurial education for growing cities outside the coast. So with that, I'll pass the mic to Janem to kick off this episode. We're excited to have you, Claire. Hi, Claire. Hi, Janem. How are you? How is everybody doing? Are you staying safe and sane? Fantastic. We're, we're doing very well. It's hot down here in Austin, Texas, but we're used to it. <laughs> I'm here in Northwest Arkansas as well. Um, and just so our listeners know, I'm so excited to have Claire on the show. I've had the chance to work with her and talk with her over the last, I guess, six to eight months now as she's been doing some work in Northwest Arkansas that we're going to talk about as well. And so her expertise and her insight into what's going on right now, and and particularly about investing as it relates to women right now, I think is going to be so relevant. So um, let's just get right into it. Sounds great. Okay. So I guess um, the first thing I I wanted to give a little backdrop for this question. um, And I think it's going to, it's going to lead the conversation, but uh, Berkeley researchers analyzed the stock investing behavior of 35,000 households over a six year period. And female investors outperformed their male counterparts by almost 1%. 
which doesn't seem like a lot, but compounds over time to a much larger sum. And the researchers concluded that male investors' underperformance was primarily due to too frequent trading, 45% more often than women, with single men being especially quick on the draw as an excess trading frequency of 67%. And so I guess this, to me, this says, how do we think about women, the risk that they take, how they think about investments, and then what does this mean broadly if you extrapolate this to women investors generally? So I wanted to get your thoughts around that. And uh, maybe as a backdrop to that, how did you get started with your career? Women investors, I think, bring an incredible level of diversity to the table. Traditionally, startup investing has been very much dominated by men and still is, especially in venture capital. But in angel investing, seed stage investing, we're seeing 20 to 30% of the investors are women these days. And in Portfolio's case, we know that a vast majority of women who are accredited investors are not doing any startup investing. They're not comfortable with it, but they simply need the education and then they can become comfortable with it and they love it. Women executives bring a ton of knowledge and willingness to mentor to the table. And I think that that's just critical for entrepreneurs. Now, my background is relatively unusual for an investor. The first 10 years of my career, I spent in a traditional charitable nonprofit running communications, events, and fundraising. And then the last 10 years, I've been working in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, running conferences, and then an angel group in Austin. And now I'm more into the venture capital side of things, as well as helping regions develop their early stage investing communities. Let's talk about that Austin angel investing. So give us a little bit of background on CTAN and your work there. And I think you and I have spoken about this, how you were able to get more women involved in the investing landscape there. Yeah, CTAN was founded in 2006. And I joined in 2014 and led the group for almost five years. When I joined, the group had 4% women and 10% ethnic minorities. And 4% is compared to the numbers that I mentioned earlier, (laughs) pretty atrocious. And one always wants diversity. Ideally, the the entrepreneur is pitching to a group of investors, whether it's seed investors or VCs, should see themselves in the room. And it makes them much more comfortable. It elevates the questioning, I think, to um, diversified experiences. I think it's all for the best to have not just diversity of person, but diversity of sector. So I spent much of my first two years in my member outreach. Every time a gentleman would apply to join, I would ask if his spouse might be interested in being a part of this. So I had more and more couples joining. And once we had more than one or two women in the room, we had more and more women just come to the meetings and be willing to consider joining. And women started inviting their female executive peers. So it just kind of ballooned from there. And we also had about a dozen family offices, and most of them had at least one representative who was a woman. And I encouraged that as well. And it was just a matter of asking to get that ball rolling. In my opinion, it's not that challenging of a a thing as long as the women are invited and made to feel comfortable. We also did an annual women's gathering so that 
the female investors who were new to the asset class could ask the more experienced women investors about various aspects of investing. And, and those cocktail hours that we did annually were not about women topics or spas or wine, although we certainly served wine. It was all about startup investing in terms and how you make those decisions. They were asking the same questions that you would expect from anyone new to an asset class. I love that. I mean, I think the word that you were using, the way you describe it is just, it's access. So you don't know what you don't know until you're around a group of people uh, that want to do it, right? And then you can learn and, and better yourself. Exactly. I mean, when I was working in nonprofits, if you had told me in 15 years, I'd be working in venture capital, I would have laughed at you. I mean, what do I know about finance? But it's something that anyone can learn given the opportunity and the invitation, I think is really the important part. Opportunity and access. Yeah, invitation. I love that word. Let's look at the other side of this really quickly. We had recently done a podcast with uh, the founder of Lightship Capital based out of Ohio. She's amazing. And one thing she brought up that was so interesting to me was that in some ways, this quarantine pandemic situation has resulted in a situation where we're all Zooming with each other. So there are no more deals being done on the golf course necessarily. You know, it, it, the traditional methods of networking are, have changed. And in some ways, it's leveled the playing field. So as you think about that in the context of more women becoming investors, more women leading seed rounds or VCs, do you think that applies? How does that, how do you think about that in this context? Unfortunately, probably kind of disagree about it leveling the playing field because it seems to me that the access to those VCs who already were difficult to find is even more difficult because they're not out in the community. So how do you get on that Zoom call with them? How do you get that warm intro? And certainly for entrepreneurs who know how to fundraise or have been in the entrepreneur community for some time, I think it does level the playing field. But for those entrepreneurs who don't have those connections, especially underrepresented founders, it, the, the playing field, if anything, I think is worse. It's a real challenge to, to find and get those investors interested who are not already investing in underrepresented minorities and women. Well, I mean, we, we certainly encourage uh, different points of view here. And I, and I, <laughs> I definitely understand what you're saying. So what can, what can a company do, especially really any company, but especially those who have traditionally been left out, out of the, you know, the boardroom, what can well, they do in this time period? I'll take this from kind of both sides, from the VC perspective and, and seed angel investor perspective. I think it's really important to stop requiring warm intros. We've had this conversation a number of times in the industry and yet people still do it. I've been on calls as recently as the last few weeks where I've had women VCs say, the best way to reach me is a warm intro. Well, if you don't have the network, how are you going to get that warm intro. And you really have to scramble to do that. Fundraising in the first place is incredibly tough. So let's take it from the entrepreneur perspective. You really have to get out there and work your network as much as possible. Even second and third connections, ask people for intros to people they know or to people they're 
colleagues know. And it's the same thing, same idea as building a company. You have to be scrappy. You have to have that passion to just go for it. And the thing about fundraising that I think is is typical is you can have a hundred meetings with investors and only one of them will invest. So when you don't have that network, you're entering that at a disadvantage. And I think it's ideal to just go ahead and identify that disadvantage and then find ways to overcome it as best you can. And in this environment where people are talking about investing more in Black and Latino founders, let's hold their feet to the fire. Well, and that's such a great segue to the next question, which is, so there are all, there are a lot of... Um, you know, public announcements of companies taking the time to invest, especially in founders of color, taking the time to set up funds, to talk about the work that they're doing to address these social justice issues. And what are the takeaways you think we should have around this as it relates to investors? What should they be doing to expand their next networks? Because, you know, as Endeavor, we work with our local entrepreneurs. And I have to tell you, unless we diversify our channels, there are no ways to reach founders of color, for example, in Northwest Arkansas. There are, but they're really hard. So what do we, what should we be doing? What should companies be doing to really take advantage of this time period to do what they say they're going to do to diversify their, their portfolios? I think that funds in particular in venture capital, this is less of an issue, as I said, in seed investing, because there's more diversity of investors there. But in venture capital, when you have an industry where black investors are 2% of the partner class and Latino investors are less than 1%, and it's even worse for black women and Latino women, of course, and women, even after the Me Too movement, are still below 10%. I think there's still below 8% of, of VC partners. That's the low-hanging fruit, in my opinion. That's where venture capital firms who say they want to invest in underrepresented founders need to focus. They need to start hiring principals, senior associates, and be ready to advance them to partner who are underrepresented minorities themselves. Because if you are a firm of three white male founders, you're not going to have that network necessarily, unless you've really sought to diversify your personal network. And most people don't diversify beyond what they know. So uh, I think that's absolutely key for the venture capital firms. And I'm not sure that just setting up a fund for underrepresented minorities is going to do the trick. Some of those funds that I've seen are about giving underrepresented founders grant. That's not taking, in my opinion, and I don't mean to be harsh, but I don't think that's taking those founders seriously enough. I think that they need to be hiring partner track investors who are underrepresented minorities, both men and women, Black and Latino. There is a higher, much higher proportion of Asian investors, which is great, but we need the underrepresented investors in this industry as partners. And not token, not token. If if you want to hire an underrepresented minority, interview a dozen of them, not 11 white people in one minority. You know, it, <laughs> I mean, I think you're so right because it's, it's sort of be the change you want to see. And if you're not, if it's not represented in your company ranks, then you're, you're clearly not going to be able to source the deal flow that's going to make it worthwhile for you to do these things where you're investing in, in underrepresented uh, founders. Yeah. And I think you may hear the message coming through, but I'm skeptical of these companies and funds who say they want to support Black Lives Matter and they want to change how they operate. Unless they're actually making real change to how they're operating, it's all window dressing and PR. And that's not what we need. Right. Well, I worked on Wall Street 
for many years. And, you know, I think the analyst class, speaking specifically to the numbers that I know, but I think the analyst class was roughly 50-50 in terms of male-female. But by the time you got That's to fantastic. the operating, yeah, but you got to the operating committees and senior management and, you know, I think it was... Changes dramatically. Dramatically, dramatically. There were so few women that were, especially women that were not in either legal or finance, treasury kind of roles. Uh, anybody in the trading and risk management roles, there were, there were no women in there really. So Well, and I think if we as industry and companies say we care about diversity, one of the things we need to look at for women in particular, whether it's underrepresented minority women or white women, is what are we doing to support them to continue the path towards senior level roles? Why are they leaving after analysts? Why are they not getting promoted? What's the issue there? And I think that there's been plenty of research on this and we can address this as a nation, frankly, but we have to commit to this being an issue that we want to fix. Yeah. And I'm, and if anything, this pandemic has worsened this problem for women, which is primarily focused around their role in the home and other burdens on them and the flexibility that they need. And if anything, everything is less flexible right now. Yeah. Virtually every woman I've talked to, whether an investor or founder or other who has kids is just pulling their hair out. I mean, it's <laughs> it's incredible how much is on the women of this country, the working women of this country. And when we don't send kids back to school, which many say is the, the smart thing to do with the pandemic getting worse here, it makes it harder for the women. So what are we going to do to help them? I'm, I'm all ears. <laughs> I'm all ears. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and of course, if it's if it's this bad for upper middle class, middle class people, women, then think how horrible, just horrific it must be for lower income women. How are they supposed to do their job and take care of their kids? There's no childcare. They may or may not have a spouse who can help. You know, it's, I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but I'm really, I think this is showing some real flaws in our country and how we operate our business, businesses and sectors here. And what we rely on our schools to do, really. I mean, they yeah. have sort of a catch-all, and I'm not sure that that's what they were designed to do, originally, yeah. at least. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I, I want to bring the conversation a little bit to the work that's happening in the heartland. And I think cause, because COVID, in addition to some of these really glaring problems has highlighted, has actually probably brought some interesting shifts to where we live, in addition to how we live. And moving people potentially away from the coast into other areas, a North, plug for Northwest Arkansas here, with our <laughs> vibrant arts community, and uh, growing entrepreneurial ecosystem. Tell us about, first tell us about the work you've done with Kaufman Fellows. Um, and then maybe let's talk about your, your opinion, especially coming out of Austin and how people, how investing is done away from the coasts and what, what that means for companies trying to raise angel or seed money uh, outside of Silicon Valley and Boston and New York. This actually ties in really nicely with Kaufman Fellows because this is one of the things that I've been most impressed about within the program is they have sought with every new class to add more diversity of, of geography. So for those who don't know, Kaufman Fellows is essentially very similar to an executive MBA for venture capitalists or people working in startup investing. We also will have some folks who are with accelerators or Endeavor in the program each year as well, and as well as LPs who are the people who invest in the venture capitalists. So this program is intended to be high EQ and you can't 
can't have a program that's just based in one region to create something that's high EQ. You have to have diversity of, of person and geography and sector. Kaufman Fellows recognized this early on. So in most of the classes over the last few years, I think the Bay Area has been about 25% of the class, which is fantastic. That means that, sure, Bay Area, that's where a ton of investors are located. It's important to, to work with those investors and help them in their journey. But getting investors between the coasts and the U.S. and then getting investors from all over the world brings the kind of diversity of thought that makes a program really special. And that's why I think that's one of the reasons why Kaufman Fellows has been so successful. They also seek to have high diversity of, of women and, and minorities, both underrepresented and not. So how this affects between the coasts, it means that there are really well-trained and well-connected investors in Chicago and Kansas City. Kansas City now has, I think, a dozen Kaufman Fellows. There are more than a dozen here in Austin. That makes a big difference to an ecosystem. And you can see that already. Over the last couple of years, the impact, the Kaufman Foundation sponsored some, I don't think they called it Heartland, but it was basically investors between the coasts. They sponsored a number of scholarships for Kaufman Fellows over a three-year period. And those made a massive difference in pulling in more, more investors from the Heartland and the middle of the country. I think it's so important because uh, unless you, unless founders see that there's smart capital in the places that- Smart connected capital. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. able to go to an investor in Kansas City who you know is connected to other investors and can and can help you pull in a bigger round or yep. help you complete your round, I think is so important. We had John Fine on the podcast and he was amazing. And he's John's out, great. Yeah. Based yeah. in Kansas City. So we're really excited about that. And so talk to me about the smart connected capital that people are looking to find in the you know, in non-coastal areas, and then how those relate to things like Republic and WeFunder. Um, what's your experience with those? Give our listeners some thought, context around what to expect, you know, in those different fundraising scenarios. I have not really done any crowdfunding, whether AngelList or WeFunder. And I think the companies that should be funded get funded. And I think there are still companies being left by the wayside. But generally, if you have an amazing idea and you're generating revenue, you can find investors who will be interested. And if they're not interested, you ask them for intros to others who might be interested. So, you know, this, the smart connected capital is funny. We mentioned it that way. That's actually the tagline for Kaufman Fellows. And I think it's, it's absolutely key. It's what entrepreneurs should want as investors if you have choice. <laughs> Hopefully you have choice in your, in your investors because you're going to be married to them for seven to 10 years, right? It, it's a long-term relationship and you can divorce a spouse much more easily than you can divorce an investor. <laughs> Right. So, uh, and I, I don't want to, I want to read between the lines here. So are you saying generally that those kinds of fundraising platforms are not necessarily providing the best investment opportunities? I don't want to disparage them in any way. I think they are in an important opportunity for those entrepreneurs who decide they're the right fit for them. I've particularly seen CPG, consumer product goods companies, succeed through doing um, crowdfunding campaigns. That's a little bit different than the crowdfunder sites, but that can get you exposure for your product that you wouldn't otherwise get. And that makes a whole lot of sense to me. What, what I'd be concerned about for founders who go the route of crowdfunding is how will that affect 
invest future rounds. Will VCs be willing to invest in your company when you have that many stakeholders already through crowdfunding? And I think the important thing for those founders is to talk to some VCs and see how will that affect their view of the company. Which makes sense. So it's really maybe a little bit industry specific, but also about what your future fundraising plans are going to look like and how, how relevant those are. Exactly. I, I mean, not uh, so the vast majority of companies should never even pursue venture capital. And as an entrepreneur, one really needs to understand the model of venture capital and how and why VCs are making their their investment decisions because they need to they need their companies, their portfolio companies, to scale to a level that many startups should not be seeking or cannot. Maybe their market's not big enough or what have you. In other cases, there are companies that only need X amount of capital. Let's say you can get to profitability and continue to build and scale your company with 3 million total lifetime rates. That's not a VC investment. That's an angel investment or maybe a crowdfunder investment. So thinking through as a founder, what you anticipate the lifetime raise of the company to be, and then backtracking that to the rounds that you need to raise is, I think, the smart way to look at fundraising. That makes a lot of sense. And I think you have to put an umbrella over that as think of that in this environment versus maybe other historically bearable environments. We spoke a little bit about this before we started recording, but give us some context around, you know, what the stock market is doing these days versus how an investor, especially a newer investor, potentially a woman who's never invested before, should think about putting their money in seed or angel investment opportunities. And, you know, as somebody who has taken risk, this this feels like a crazy crazy market. I mean, we're in double digit unemployment. We're probably not leaving there for a while. And yet the stock market is volatile and uh, really unexplainable in my mind. But uh, what are your thoughts on that? I forget which economist said this, but the stock market is not at all a reflection of Main Street. So it's it's all over the place. There's, <laughs> I think there's very little way to predict it, especially in this kind of environment. I mean, how is the stock market this high when we're in a global pandemic, clearly in a recession, and we have millions and millions of people unemployed and those jobs are are going away. They're not all coming back. Right. And so, election year on top of that. Yeah. And an election year. There we get that. Fun times. <laughs> so I, I think um, I think it's really important for investors to consider how they're diversifying their overall portfolio. And if they're going to consider investing in startups, they need to first of all recognize that this is a highly volatile, high risk invest. So it's not the same as dropping some money in an in an ETF and watching the stocks grow over time. 90% of startups fail. If you do due diligence as an investor, you can drop that to 50% of startups fail. So there are some, there certainly are a lot of best practices that investors can learn. And that's one of the things we're working on in Northwest Arkansas is to educate those who are accredited investors in the region on this asset class and how, if they want to get involved in it, they can do so in a way that maximizes their potential for positive return. Now, the the average return for uh, angel investors, according to research, is 2.6x in the U.S. And that's actually slightly better in some cases than venture capital. 85% of venture capital funds either do not return the money to the investors, or if they do, it's less than 2x. 85%. That is actually higher than I thought it was. I thought it was closer to 50% to be honest, but wow. It's run between 75 and 85%, but um, especially with more micro VCs and the smaller VC funds, the explosion of those 
over the last five years or so, it continues to change the dynamic in venture capital. And so really, it's about understanding your overall risk as an accredited investor, if you haven't been in this asset class before. And, yeah. and in some ways, maybe there's more opportunity investing in this market than in, in the at the peak of a, you know, at a 2000, you know, well, and so 2019 market. Here, here's what I've found. If you're, I've met a lot of experienced investors who are really skeptical of startup investing, and I think they should be if they don't have a passion for it. The people who, especially seed investors, angel investors, if you will, they really typically have a lot of passion for this asset class. So they either want to be around really cutting edge innovation and help support that, or they're interested in mentoring and advising new founders and even experienced entrepreneurs. Or third, they truly want to help their local economy by investing in companies in their region and and locally. Because, you know, we all, I think most of us know that small business is the backbone of our country. It's not all those companies on the stock market necessarily. It's the small businesses across the country. And startup founders are a piece of that, even though they're not traditional small businesses, they have an opportunity to make a difference for a region economically. Well, I, for our Northwest Arkansas listeners, um, you're going to see more things from Claire as she works to uh, get our accredited investor force ready for investing. <laughs> so we're really excited about the work she's doing. So before we segue to our next section, Claire, I wanted to ask your opinion about what you guys are doing in the Femtech Fund. And, and I believe that you're fully invested and you're going to be launching another fund, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So I'm a partner in the Femtech tech fund at Portfolia and Portfolia's goal, it's a unique model that they are working with primarily women, although certainly men are welcome to join, accredited women investors to teach them about this asset class and then help them invest across lots of different stages. So unlike an angel group, we're investing in everything from seed to A, B, and C rounds. In the Femtech fund, we invested across all stages. And with Femtech, that's women's health was our focus. And the, we were the very first Femtech fund in the nation. We are hoping for the day when Femtech funds are no longer needed. But women's health was not getting funded and still isn't getting funded to the extent it should be. So we had a chance to invest in some very exciting companies like Future Family, Medora, Prime Genomic, a Bone Health Solution. It's fascinating stuff. And I think it's fantastic that women, largely women, are having a chance to invest in companies that are focused on women's health. Now, Portfolia is a family of funds. So in addition to that right now, now that we've subscribed our fund and they've fully invested the Femtech fund, we also have, there's an active aging and longevity fund open right now. There's the Rising America Fund, which is the first fund in the nation to have exclusively Latino and Black, Latina and Black investors as the partners. It's incredible. Five fantastic women, three or four of whom are Kaufman Fellows. So there's a nice tie in there. But there's also the First Step Fund where you have a chance to look at new verticals across a lot of different verticals. So there's an opportunity there with Portfolio, both from the entrepreneur perspective and from the investor perspective to look at a number of different funds and kind of fit in where you 
where you either have the most passion or the one that's most relevant to what you need to raise. So uh, listeners, check that out. And both in terms of the companies that they're supporting, but also uh, in terms of the fundraising that they're going to be doing. But I love that we started off with the concept of being, seeing what you want to be, being what you want to see. And then, and then talking about it at the end here, which is clearly what you guys are doing. So that's really exciting. Yeah. In the world. In the change you want to see. Uh, let's move over to, this is sort of our, our tried and true segment at Endeavor and uh, our Multiplier Effect podcast. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and we've asked all of our, our guests this question, but uh, we at Endeavor envision a world where people can accomplish anything they have access to given the right opportunity and resources. Our selection criteria for Endeavor entrepreneurs is to have a mentality of give back, to become future mentors, investors, influencers for the next generation of companies. So on a personal level, uh, what are your give back goals? Either those you are already accomplishing or perhaps those you intend to accomplish? Several. First of all, my husband and I are beginning to invest in startups ourselves, primarily through funds. We're in the Kauffman Fellows Fund and Portfolio. And so I think that's one piece. But for me, the more important piece is is the personal connections and doing what I can to help people on an individual or company level. So mentoring a few women entrepreneurs, or really, I don't have a preference for gender, but that's frequently who who gets introduced to me as a woman leader, but helping really any founder who needs advice as, as much as I can, you know, time is limited. And so I have to pick and choose where I can uh, give of my time. But that's always a goal of mine is to help founders as much as possible with advice. And clearly an area that you're so passionate about too. So I'm sure you'll get some inbounds after this podcast. (laughs) Founder of Endeavor, Linda Rotenberg has always said, call me crazy. Crazy is a compliment. So we'd like to ask each guest on our show, Claire, what has been your call me crazy moment? Call me crazy at any time in my life? Any time in your life. It can be professional or personal as you like. Well, very few people know this, but I did competitive jitterbugging in college with all the lifts. And I think that was a little crazy. I could have broken my neck. <laughs> I did not even know there was competitive jitterbugging. And I love it now. <laughs> I, can look it up. I, I think you'll have to, do you still jitterbug? Is this something that you... I, I'm trying to convince my husband to learn to dance and I think I have him convinced. So when, uh, when quarantine and pandemic is over, we'll go take some classes. <laughs> It's one of my favorite um, times dancing. <laughs> I'll have to work on my husband there. Um, <laughs> and lastly, we have some quick and digestible thoughts for our listeners and things that they want to learn about you. So what time do you wake up and what time is bedtime? Oh, I've been a night owl for as long as I can remember. I love to wake up early, but I can't seem to go to bed early. <laughs> Typical bedtime for me by the time I'm actually winding down and going to sleep is sometime around midnight, Mm -hmm. waking up usually around eight. If I don't get my eight hours of sleep, I'm in trouble. I'm a night owl too. It's the time where everybody in my house is quiet and I get to to focus. And not just in your house, everywhere. Everywhere. (laughs) No emails and coming, new emails coming into your inbox, except mine. I'm the one sending them out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What are you reading right now? I am reading... um, a science fiction author who happens to be a black woman, N.K. Jemison, and the book is called The Fifth Season. I love just about every fiction genre you could think of, except romance, I guess. Historical fiction, I've been getting more into sci-fi. I love fantasy. There's just so much fun stuff to read. My Goodreads list is miles long. <laughs> I love that. And I, I want to say that you are, I think, our first guest 
if I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope I'm not wrong here, that is mentioned a fiction book here and not a book about investing or finance, which I love because sometimes you just need something else to think about. And uh, yes, and, and I'm not here to pretend that, that all I read is nonfiction finance books, because that's just not true. More <laughs> sustainable. <I'm>, no. <laughs> Um, what would your parents describe that you do for a living? So my parents passed away many years ago, but, um, I think they would describe that I help people and it's what they did and it's what they raised me to do. I know that probably sounds like a hackneyed term, but no, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we get a lot of the answers for this have been like, Oh, my parents think I run it. I'm on shark tank or something like that. (laughs) And I worked in structured credit and finance for a while. My parents had no clue what I did, uh, nor loved ones, you know, people around me that were. So um, I love that you say that. And and I think that's definitely true. Certainly been such a positive impact in Northwest Arkansas already. So oh, thank you. I love Northwest Arkansas. I know we're going to get you over here. That's my goal. Uh, What's one new habit that you've developed in a post-quarantine world? Well, I would say pedicures, but I haven't actually sat down and done the pedicure yet. (laughs) Reading about it. (laughs) Personally, I'm taking better care of my skin for some reason. I don't know if it's how, because I have more more time, but my husband and I t- took up the uh, the new hobby of doing puzzles. And it's been an interesting learning experience in our relationship because I love the challenging puzzles and he wants the easy ones, which cracks me up. <laughs> we, I have, I too have been doing puzzles and uh, we, we're, we're in somewhere in the middle. We did one really challenging one. It took us like weeks and weeks and then the payoff just wasn't as good for the effort that we spent on it, but, uh, but I'm taking pictures before and after, so that's I that's love fun that. too. Uh, I've actually heard that people generally, I mean, people skin has actually been a thing I've read about that people have generally much healthier skin through this time period. Maybe it's we're traveling really? less, the stress, hmm. the stress of traveling, the air quality, things like that have just been better. But of course, you know, when I travel, I'm so happy because I love to travel, especially internationally. Uh, when I travel, my skin looks great. So. <laughs> It's just the stress of everyday life outside of quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then our last question is, is there anything that I should have asked you, but I didn't? Oh, you know what? You didn't ask about my pug. Oh. The love of my life. Tell us about Cosmo the pug. (laughs) How old is your pug? Four years old. Not a new quarantine dog. So that's... (laughs) Yeah. He, um, He wears shoes when he goes outside because we live downtown with a lot of, lot of asphalt and it's hot. And uh, he very quickly learned, I taught him to, to lift his paws every time he needs to put a shoe on or for us to put a shoe on him. So I'm actually thinking about taking him to, um, to some more training. He's, he's a pretty talented dog. Clearly a very smart dog. <laughs> <laughs> he runs in the family. I know that has everything to do with investing. <laughs> Well, and then probably the most relevant information that our listeners will want is um, what, how should they get in touch with you? What are your handles? Is there anything you want to plug uh, before we, before we close? Yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm sometimes active, sometimes not, but it's at Claire England, C-L-A-I-R-E, E-N-G-L-A-N-D. I'm also on LinkedIn and open, easy to find there. And I've mentioned Portfolio and Kaufman Fellows a number of times today. So um, both of those are on Twitter and I think they're fantastic resources to follow. Kaufman Fellows has a, a blog that they put out with all kinds of research and stats that's really helpful for both founders 
founders and, and investors. So I would encourage folks to check that out. Excellent. Well, Claire, thanks so much for joining us. I, I really valued your, opinion, valued your opinion and I'm so excited for the work you're doing in Northwest Arkansas. We are going to turn, you're going to turn us into a, a large community of angel investors and um, hope to see you soon in person after yes. all this is over. <laughs> This has been such an honor. Thank you for having me on, Janim. It's great to see you. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Claire for joining us on the show today. We look forward to continuing to build these narratives around designing investor communities to be inclusive and diversified in Northwest Arkansas and can't wait to have Claire back for a visit sometime soon. Until then, head to our website to learn more about her and the Femtech Fund at EndeavorNWA.org. We have two more episodes left in our investor series and we can't wait to share these dynamic conversations in the coming weeks with you all. So be sure to tune in next Thursday for an all new episode as we begin to wrap up our first series. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in and we will see you next week.